1: Welcome to today's episode of Growth Island. My name is Mas Fries, and I got a true expert talking with me today. He went to Yale University for his bachelor studying psychology. He went to the University of Pennsylvania to get a PhD in neuroscience. And for those who don't know, Yale and University of Pennsylvania are the top, top universities in the world. But he didn't stop there. He then went to work as a research assistant at Yale University, worked at the University of Pennsylvania, also went to Berkeley, which is one of the best universities as well, and is now working on psychology as an assistant professor at New York University, NYU. So he's kind of taking all of the best universities in the world. We're just missing two more, which <laughs> is Harvard and Stanford, then we got them all. So Karthik Sinevasan, welcome so much and thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Mass. It's great to talk to you and great to see you again. So, will you just start by telling how did you get into all of this psychology in the brain?
2: Well, um, there's two ways. One was I just took an intro psychology class uh, as a freshman, my first year of university, just just for fun, I uh, had no intention of being a psychologist. And it really, uh, once we started talking about memories and uh, eyewitness testimony and things like that, it, it was really fascinating to me. Uh, and at the same time, I started to do a little bit of research. Um, and I was working with patients who had schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is, is really uh, pretty Debilitating mental illness and seeing these patients and seeing how little we really understood about how the brain uh, is going wrong in, in patients with schizophrenia really wanted me to help, help figure that out. And so that's how I got into it and really been doing it half my life now.
1: Cool. And so, just uh, what is neuroscience? so neuroscience is trying
2: to understand our study of the brain and i think what's nice is that i have a uh, i've gotten to study psychology and neuroscience and i really work at the intersection of the two so the study of the mind and then the study of how the brain gives rise to a lot of our mental states which is what i'm interested in uh and so marrying those two has been has been a a great place to be
1: cool so it's the psychology that we know, and then it's also taking off that biology and putting them together. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Awesome? Yeah. Cool. So what's some of the cool things that you've been looking at?
2: So I study uh, mainly short-term memory. So for example, we whenever we think about memory, we're thinking about, you know, uh, you know, maybe what we ate for breakfast or what happened to us the other day or our first day of school or our favorite memory with our our parents now that's all the domain of long term memory, and we don't really think much about short term memory, but short term memory is super important so a really concrete example is if i Give you a phone number to remember, and you have to sort of rehearse those digits in your mind before you're able to write it down or punch it into your phone. That's short-term or working memory, um, and that's what I study. Now, if you've seen like the movie Memento, or you know, there's a lot of other cases of people who have amnesia who have issues with long-term memory. They can't remember. You know, our long-term memory is our sense of self, right? If you didn't remember who your friends were, what you like to do, where you like to go, your memories from your childhood, you you would sort of lose your sense of self. But you'd still be able to sort of function day to day because you could form a goal. You could say, okay, I'm going to go stand up and go make myself some coffee right now. But if you didn't have your short-term memory, you wouldn't even be able to do that. You might remember who you are. You might remember, you know, great memories with your parents, but you wouldn't be able to put Confirmation together for even a few seconds at a time, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation because as we're talking, you're probably trying to think through what I'm saying, see if you agree, think about what you want to say next. All of that stuff is short-term or working memory. And and uh, our ability to do that is connected with so many things like our IQ and our success in in school and uh, socioeconomic a status. All these things seem to be connected to this uh, short-term ability to have short-term memory, and so for me, it's a really fascinating thing to study. Not to mention that uh, it looks like people who have mental illness often lose this ability. Uh, people with schizophrenia, maybe people with uh, even with de- uh, depression and anxiety might have some deficits in this ability, and so maybe understanding this ability could help unlock a lot of treatments for, uh, mental health and also with aging. So, uh, we lose this ability as we age. So it's, it's got a lot of different facets to it and it makes for sort of a pretty fascinating study.
1: Um, so short term memory, is that the same as executive function? It's tied to executive function. So executive function is, uh,
2: an ability that's particularly well developed in humans that involves our ability to uh, coordinate between multiple goals uh, and working memory is a a really crucial piece of that.
1: Okay, cool. So short-term memory, how some people talk about how many things you can keep in mind, how many numbers and so on. How does that relate and what does that mean? What do we know about that?
2: Yeah, that's so short term, your short term memory capacity, uh, or that how much stuff you can hold in mind at once, um, is really important. And it's actually really small, right? Our long term memory capacity is essentially unlimited. It's not, it's not as if there's some clear limit to how many things we can remember from you know, school or from our childhood or, or our experiences, but our, our short-term or working memory capacity is very limited. Uh, and so, you know, if I gave you a string of of numbers to remember at a certain point, you just, you just start to lose them, right? Uh, and so the amount of stuff that we can hold in our working memory at one point in time is actually very related to things, as I was saying, like your um, performance in school, your IQ, all these things seem to be related to this ability to hold as much stuff as possible uh, in mind at once. And it's, it's pretty limited, which makes it particularly fascinating. Why is it so limited? Um, what is it about the way that it works in the brain that makes it so limited? These are all questions that I'm trying to understand.
1: Yeah. So I heard something about people can keep three, five or seven things. In my, is that true, or is that just someone that misread some science or some research papers and like made it easy for people to understand?
2: It's a it's a good question. I think with a lot of these things, and what I what I like telling my students I think sometimes maybe it frustrates them is everything you know all these things are only partially true so yes there is some limit people have talked about five or the magic number seven of amount of things you can keep in mind but really uh it's it's a bit more complex than that so it's you you sort of have this capacity and you can remember a certain number of things but I could have you remember more things but with less detail for each thing So it's sort of not just the number, but also the level of detail that you're remembering things. And so it's not a precise number, but that's a sort of handy way to explain it. Yeah, something like five or seven things somewhere in there is about, about what the typical human can hold at once.
1: Yeah, and then there's something about how you group things. So, exactly.
2: So if you chunk things, if you're able to chunk things, so for example, if I gave you a list of letters to remember, you'd be able to remember, you know, maybe five, seven, something like that. And uh, But if the letters were arranged in a way that they actually could be uh, arranged into syllables, that Sort of made sense to you. You'd be able to remember a lot more letters, right? That you'd be able to chunk letters together, and you'd be able to remember them in a in a different way, and and remember more stuff. And there are all sorts of tricks to being able to remember more things. Um, I'm not, I don't know how much those translate to real life, but you know, you can you could. you There's strategies for remembering more and more stuff.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I read this book. I think it's called Memory or something else. This guy from Norway about how to organize and be able to remember a lot of numbers and so on. Like you had to think about your childhood house and put each information into a different room. And then you would have your route and there would be a way to store memory and then be able to remember it longer term.
2: Yeah, there are these (coughs) super memorizers, right? I I think that's called the memory palace. Uh, And typically you sort of, the way that it's talked about is you remember sort of this palace and then each... Thing that you're trying to remember is associated with a very specific area of this building or, or room that you're in, and that is really interesting. That it works because it also um, there's research that suggests that a, a lot of our long-term memory was built off our ability, the same part of the brain that is used for navigating in in space, um, and so that works really well and there's these people who can remember you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things and they have these super memories but uh and that's a really good strategy if you need to memorize like a textbook or or uh, or memorize a speech or something like that possibly but it's not sort of your it's not going to improve your day-to-day working memory ability and uh it it doesn't really work so well in terms of our long-term memories most of what's in our mem- long-term memories not stuff we decided to put in there right it's you didn't decide to remember what you had for dinner last night you just either remember it or you don't and it's just coincidental whether you remember it or not often
1: yeah so that's a funny thing. like what did you have for dinner last night is that short-term or long-term memory I'm that's long-term memory
2: okay. uh, for anything short-term memory that I'm talking about. I'm talking about very short term, on the order of seconds to tens of seconds, but not really beyond like a minute or something like that. Uh, and so, short term memory, at least the way that I'm talking about it, operates over very brief intervals. So, what you had for dinner last night definitely in the realm of long term memory.
1: Yep. So, what else do we know about short term memory in the brain?
2: Um, we're learning more and more about why it's limited so uh, what are the sources of interference i mean one of the fascinating things about short term memory is that we don't just do it in in a vacuum right i can give you a digit uh, a set of digits to remember but you're not closing your eyes and covering your ears and saying la 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 the whole time i'm you know doing anything else right i can keep talking to you and you can keep remembering those those digits. So we're able to do this despite the fact that there's all kinds of things happening in our environment. We're able to think about other things at the same time. Uh, and so trying to understand how the brain is able to filter out that irrelevant stuff and only keep the relevant stuff. We're, we're learning about that in the brain and how different brain regions, particularly in your frontal lobe, are really important for, uh, for short-term memory and... Part of my research is trying to understand other brain regions that sort of traditionally are not thought to be as much a part of this process, um, like your uh, visual regions and other, other sensory areas are also important for it. So it really is something that I think the more we learn about it, we more we learn that as with many brain functions, it's sort of distributed across the brain and there's no one area that's uh, important for it.
1: Yeah. Are we starting to see research between the microbiome and short-term memory? So that's a really
2: fascinating area. The, the convergence between microbiome and, and neuroscience, I think, is something that you'll start to see a lot of. There isn't a ton out there, but you know, we, we sort of think of it as uh, we are sort of in control of our, our destiny and we're choosing, we, we have this illusion that we're making all these choices about what we want to do, what we want to eat. And I think the more we learn about our microbiome, you get to this sort of scary position where I'm exaggerating a little here, but it's like they're sort of helping make those decisions for us. And, you know, it's very hard to disentangle what we're doing because it's best for our microbiome and what we're doing because it's actually something we want to do. Um, So I think that's something that's going to be really fascinating. Uh, You know, there are these really weird parasites that people, I don't know if you've, you've heard of some of these things where they can... Uh, fungi that can take over like an ant and control the the ant's behavior and all sorts of you know very strange things. And the ant just sort of serves as this host for this this mm. parasite. Uh, and at the extreme, you wonder, sometimes I wonder, maybe it's our, our microbiome is really sort of taking over us and making us do a, a lot of things that can help support it.
1: Yeah. That's really fat So one thing I found fascinating, I think it was a professor that told me as well, that the stuff that we think we know about the brain. So please correct me and tell me how it is. But when we say that we know this is going on in this part of the brain, what we really know is that there's blood flowing to that part of the brain when this activity happens. That's not the same to say that that's necessarily like because this part of the brain is doing that part. And now with the understanding of the microbiome and other things that it could actually be something in the microbiome Then activating and then, yeah, the blood flow. So how... I think that's that's definitely
2: true. So when we are learning stuff about the brain, particularly in humans, so in animals it's a different story. But when we're trying to learn about human brains, uh, we're limited by ethics and for a lot of reasons that we can't really get into the brain, right? We have to study the brain w- without, you know, cracking open the skull, um, yeah. which I think I think all of our, our human subject volunteers are very happy that that's the case, that we're not cracking their skulls open.
1: Come in for research study. On <laughs> your brain.
2: Exactly. So we don't do that we, and we have to do it non-invasively and the, one of the best tools we have is uh, to use functional MRI and so most of your listeners are probably familiar with an MRI in the context of a uh, medical uh, setting or in the hospital you might get an MRI for sprained knee something like that but we use a sort of different tweak on the MRI and we end up uh, being able to study bra- uh, brain activation so we have Human subjects come in to our lab, we give them memory tests to do, and they're lying in the MRI while they're doing them. We're able to study what parts of the brain are are active at different points in time uh, and for different tasks. Now, when we say active, as you said, it's really changes in the blood oxygenation, which is a very indirect measure of the brain's activation. So, we're it's just sort of by uh, coincidence that we're able to measure this signal and that it has something to do with brain activation. Now, exactly what the relationship between your brain cells um, sending signals to other brain cells and the fact that they need more uh, blood flow, that, that relationship is not totally, totally clear to us. Um, so it's an indirect measure. But what's nice uh, about this is that we can corroborate a lot of these findings by then trying to study some of these things in animals where we actually can use more invasive techniques that that directly measure brain activity.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So how can we use some of this knowledge about the brain?
2: That's, I think that's one of the really fascinating things about neuroscience is right now a lot of the, the mass majority of it is really telling us how little we know and helping us learn learn bits and pieces about the brain i think one of the challenges going for i think for the next a uh, couple of decades is going to be really getting good at translating this to everyday knowledge. Now, of course, there's a lot of people who are working on things that have to do specifically with uh, mental health and, and disease, and and those things are being translated. But sort of basic science, trying to understand how how does memory work, how does attention work, all these things translating that to improving and changing people's daily lives is something that you know is not quite as easy to to do. Um, One of the things that fascinates me uh, about the brain is not not just how little we know about it, but how our understanding of the brain has, has really helped us realize that our view on the world is a very, very biased view. We think we're perceiving our entire surroundings, but we're really only perceiving a small portion of that. And we're sort of filling in the rest of that based on our, our prior experience and and sort of guesswork. So we really have a very limited view on our world. And then we fill in the rest based on intelligent guesses. And we're doing this all the time without even being conscious about it. You can intuit this yourself if you just sort of move your eyes around, right? If you move your eyes around, it doesn't feel like your world is just, um, shaking and that you're just sort of getting snapshots on the world. It's very different. Moving your eyes around is very different than taking a video camera and moving that around and looking at the resulting image, right? That's a very different experience. And our world feels very constant to us, despite the fact that we can move our eyes around. And that's because we have this sort of image of our world that may or may not be totally true and is, is actually not really that true that we're able to sort of preserve in our in our minds and that can can uh, last over eye movements and that that's what gives us our impression that the, we have a unchanging and stable world despite the fact that the actual input that is going into our brains from our eyes is changing quite a bit uh, and some of this does involve our short-term memories as well but this, this idea that we we really see a lot less than we we think we do mm. um, and and having getting a full appreciation of that there's pretty nice demos online you can you can see this yourself if you just google change blindness and there's all these cool demos you can see where you know there's big things changing in a scene in front of you but you're unable to actually identify them unless you're paying attention to them yep. uh and i think that that's to me that's one of the most fascinating things of our brain is just sort of making guesses and making predictions about the world all the time uh it's really a You know, A good way to think about the brain is this big prediction machine that's sort of taking poor data in and using that to make its best guess.
1: Yeah. So I guess we can use that to be more open. When we think something is certain or we know all the answers, that be a bit more open. I think one of the videos is also the one where they throw the basketball around this. That's right. I've I've seen a few of those and definitely opens your mind to be, okay, perhaps... I should be more open to other input and so on. I might not have the full picture.
2: That's right. We, we don't have a full picture. And even our memories, our long-term memories are really, I think that's the other thing, uh, one of the other things that really fascinates me about the brain is our, our long-term memories are also not veridical representations of what actually happened to us. They're just sort of these biased windows onto some event that our perception of the event to begin with was probably biased by our beliefs and, and thoughts. And then our memory of it can change over time. It can be corrupted by the way that we talk about it. Yeah. There's some theories that say every time we're recalling a memory. So you know, maybe you have a really treasured childhood memory, let's say, and maybe it's the first time you rode a bike. Every time you actually recall that memory and bring it to the forefront of your mind, maybe to tell the story, maybe just it comes to mind. Every time you do that people think that that actually changes the memory itself, and so the context in which you're recalling it has the ability to, to sort of rewrite the memory itself. And this is a way where memories can change dramatically over over time uh, without you having any intention to. And this is you know a bit a bit scary in a way, right? Because as I was talking about before, your memories, you know, your sense of self is really based a lot on your on your memories, uh, but these are not super reliable; they can change over time and if people are very clever, they can get them to change over you can you can influence people 's memory to memories to change uh, and This is why I think, going back to one of the first things I was talking about, this is why in general eyewitness testimony is is a is a pretty has been shown to be fairly unreliable because depending on how the question is asked, the types of questions that are asked, you might influence people to Say things or, or recall things that didn't actually happen, and I think that's that's a little bit that's a little bit scary.
1: Super scary. Yeah, I remember when you told me about that the first time. How you can actually manipulate a memory.
2: Yeah, our knowledge of memory. Hopefully, I like to think that I'm using my knowledge of memory for good. But there's definitely people if they really truly understand this, they could probably use it for for ill. And and uh, I think just being aware of the fact as you were talking about, you know, just being aware of the fact that we don't see everything that's out there, just the, also being aware of the fact that the way that our memory, our memory and event is not, is not a actual record of what happened. I think even having that awareness is a good, is a good start. It's a good way to, it's a good way to be. Um, and the fact that we can change our memories isn't just a bad thing. I mean, I think we've we've been talking about sort of the scary side of it, but sometimes it's a good thing, right? Some awful things can happen to us and we're able to sort of reframe those with with work over time and and turn those into not so awful things. Um, you know, if we had to live sort of with every awful thing that happened to us vividly and sort of exactly as it happened, that wouldn't be so fun. And so I think it's it's This ability is definitely uh, adaptive for us for a lot of reasons, but it's problematic only when we think we have these sort of infallible memories. And that's when I think it can be problematic.
1: I think that's super fascinating. Also, when we talk about storytelling and what stories you tell yourself, what do you bring out? If that actually changes our memories and also goes into that, you change the, the, the pathways in the brain about what you, what you think about. So one thing that I do is I write down a gratitude journal. Okay. So three things I'm grateful for every night before going to bed. Because so that's one of the things within positive psychology that's found to have one of the highest effects on your happiness. But what you're telling also puts more perspective into why it's working. So I might be changing my memories for my day because I'm then focusing on the right things. And that makes sense that then I focus on the good things my brain changes and my understanding of what happened during that day.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's good. That makes you, if that, if that makes you happy, then that's, that's wonderful, right? I think that that's a really good outlook. And as you said, there's a lot of work with positive psychology on this, but I think getting to understand how this is happening in the brain is sort of a fascinating thing but as you as you suggested it's likely something to do with that where you're actually changing the the memories themselves and it, it's changing the brain every time you have a, a memory is a change in your brain that's uh that's something i'd like to impress on my students we sometimes i think people have an appreciation of the fact that memories involve changes in, in the brain but it really is a memory is a change in the brain it's a change in the connection between cells in your brain and and that's happening all the time i mean our brains are incredibly plastic and changing all the time and that's very important and i think that memory is a really great example of that and if you can use that for to make ourselves happy i think that's 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 wonderful
1: yeah so what's a new area of the brain and psychology that you're looking at recently i started to dip my toe in the water
2: of understanding consciousness so how is our conscious experience uh how does our brain give rise to that conscious experience we have a lot of our lives that we're conscious of there are a lot of things that are also happening to us that we're not conscious of and what in the brain is different about our experience um so in the lab, I'll start with sort of the more boring lab setting type, but then I will move on to sort of talking about how that translates to real life. In the lab, what we'll do is we'll, we'll show people things in such a way that it's very hard to see them. Sometimes they see them and sometimes they don't. And what even though, be? Uh, so for example, we'll show it to them for a very brief period of time and then immediately afterwards cover it up. So we'll sort of flash something on the screen followed by just sort of a pattern of noise on the screen so that it's very hard to
1: see. So I, you know, it's kind of like in Fight Club where yeah. you have uh, there is a penis coming in fast or they show uh, the commercials. You don't really see it, but it was there yeah. you have to it's exactly like Fight Club it's exactly yeah. like the penis in Fight Club Yeah.
2: so yes Uh. right so it's it's on the screen for although uh, we're not just, just for the record in case anyone from uh, the university is listening we're not showing our subjects penises so yeah, perfect. Um, uh, so it is something where we're showing this for just one screen refresh and then we uh, right away cover it up and so Sometimes they see it, sometimes they don't. And what's the difference between those? What we're trying to understand is what is different about the way that the brain is processing these things when they actually say, oh, I, I saw that thing. And, and sometimes they say, no, I definitely didn't see anything. Um, and what can we do with that information? If we don't see it, is it just gone? Does our brain not, not register it at all? And the truth is that it does to some level, and it's able to influence our decisions and our behavior on some level, uh, even if we feel that we didn't see it. And I think that's what's, that's the area that's, that's interesting to us. So now taking that off to into real life, right, there's a lot of, as I was saying, there's a very small part of our world that we're actually aware of at any one time. Now, to what degree is the rest of our world sort of leaking into our brains and has this ability to influence us? Or is it just something that we don't, don't, perceive and doesn't influence our behavior in, in any way. And I think what's in the last decade, we've really started to realize that, you know, there's a lot that we can do with information that we we feel like we didn't, never even encountered. Um, some of our work suggests you might even be able to have sort of short-term memories for things that you didn't actually feel like you ever saw, uh, which is very strange. We, we very much... Particularly in short-term memory, we associate that with uh, conscious thought. But we're starting to see that maybe there's a dissociation between the two. Um, and that's something that we're, we're really looking into now.
1: That's fascinating. So I know working at a university and being a researcher, you have to be very careful what you say. Everything has to be backed by science. But what yeah. I'm um, hearing that you're saying is that you could then have a theory then that the music that you're hearing the words that are being said and so on, even though you don't really hear them, your subconscious mind hear them, and then they might have an effect on you, even though you don't think there.
2: Yeah, and, uh, absolutely, and and I think you, all of your listeners and can probably intuit this yourselves. It happens to me all the time, where you know, all of a sudden I'll start there'll be sort of a song or a tune stuck in my head, and it's. it's there's sort of this moment where I become actually aware that it's there, right? It's sort of you know when you're aware of it, you're like, oh right, I've been sort of singing this song for the last couple of hours, but it hasn't. It's not something that I've been aware that's been kind of rattling around in my head, and it came from a, I heard that song on the radio uh, yesterday, so it's been sort of uh, you know, knocking around my brain for 24 hours, but it's really only now that it kind of all of a sudden just popped to the front of my mind. And now I, I can say, Oh yeah, that's the song that I was that I that I uh, was that I'm sort of singing to myself in my head. And that's the song I heard on the radio the other day. So absolutely that's I, I think that just from your own experience, you can probably be familiar with something like that.
1: Yeah. Cool. So before we round off, any final tips, advice you would say from either the research you've done or your own life to become the best version of yourself?
2: I think from my own personal experience, uh, I think there's there's a couple of things. One is whether it's professionally or personally or something, I think, and you and I have talked about this at other times, you got to find something that you do that you're so excited about that you can... It gets you so excited that you can get other people excited about it. It could be, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who might find sort of brain science dry and and uninteresting, but I'm excited enough about it to be able to want to get on a podcast and, and talk about it. And hopefully, I mean, your listeners can decide for themselves, but hopefully I got them a little bit excited about it. It's something that I like to talk about. I like to get others excited about. And it doesn't have to be your work, but it has to be, I think, find something that you do that you can get other people excited about. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, that's super important. Um, and I think other thing, again, personally, uh, from my own experience is when you feel comfortable, really comfortable professionally, I think that's the time when it's, that's when it's time to make a change. I think I've, I've, it hasn't always been on purpose, but my whole career, sort of right at the time when I've felt like, okay, I really, really know what I'm doing here. It's been about the time that it's time to move on and and try something else. And I think that's been super valuable and kept me uh, focused, kept me uh, sharp. Um, Now, from my own research, I think, you know, we talked about just sort of having appreciation for how fallible our memories are, how little we know about the world. And I think, um, you know, there's things I, I get a lot of people asking me, so what can I do to improve my memory? And there's no great answer for that. I think a lot of the brain training stuff that's out there is is not. There's not a lot of good evidence that that brain training stuff works. I think it's it's great and it's it's good stuff. And p- if people feel like it does something for them, then that's great. But as to whether it can actually improve your memory or your attention, not a lot of evidence that it that it can. But uh, what I know,
1: about meditation?
2: Yeah, I was just going to get to that. I think uh, I think my grad school advisor, um, she really does now, she's sort of shifted gears and she does a lot of, uh, research into mindfulness meditation. And it's not something that I personally have done much research into, but it, people always sort of ask me about that. And my answer is it definitely, definitely cannot hurt. It's, it's good. You know, it's, it's gotta be, it, it's going to help you. That's my intuition. I think that it's, probably some form of form of attention training and I think that it is something that's going to going to help you. And worst case I think it'll just sort of put you at ease in, in some ways and that can never be a bad thing. I would also say there's a lot of evidence um, about uh, just exercise, right? Physical health and mental health are super well connected. And so I know that I feel a lot sharper when I'm you know, when I'm going to the gym semi regularly. So I think that it's that's another way you can, these are super easy changes to make five minutes of mindfulness, you know, every day, every other day, 20 minutes, 30 minutes at the gym, a couple times a week. And I think these are things that we can do to, to stay sharp. Uh, and then, you know, be social, social being social is, has been shown to sort of extend our mental longevity. And I think that that's something that those are all things that are easy changes to make they're, they're usually fun things to do and, and they're all changes I think we can all make and, and feel better be our best selves that way
1: cool thank you so much Kasik. it was thanks, truly, man. A, truly a pleasure talking to you again and learning more so I find the brain extremely fascinating the mix between psychology and also more science about what happens in the brain and so on So, um, <laughs> thanks for taking the time thanks for having me